us right after church. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And uh, I want to invite you to just pause in silence for a moment before we read the scripture. Let's just settle our hearts, let the Spirit open us up to receive what He has for us today in His Word. Hear the reading of God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, Gospel Transformation. Gospel Transformation. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are here among us. You are the way maker, the miracle worker. You are the light in the darkness. And so, Lord, we invite you to shine the light of your word into whatever dark spaces we find ourselves in, whether it's our own sin, whether it's suffering, whether it's loss and pain, whether it's just a dullness of our heart, Lord, shine the light of your word today and change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when I was in elementary school, I don't know about you, but the world felt like everything was full of wonder. I remember uh, when I was in first grade, one of our, our teachers she came into the classroom and told all the students that we were going to be raising butterflies. Butterflies. And I, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be cool. I've never seen a butterfly grow up. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I'm a first grader. And so she walks in with this container full of caterpillars. And in my little first grade mind, I'm trying to figure out how this makes sense. She said we're raising butterflies, and she has a container full of caterpillars. You know where I'm going with this. But as a first grader, I, I didn't understand it. She brought this thing in, and, and these caterpillars, they have legs, and where's their wings, and they don't have the beautiful colors that I'm thinking of with butterflies. And, and she sat us down, and she said, just wait and be patient. Be patient and watch them grow. And so we did what the teacher said. We waited, and we were patient, and we watched the caterpillars eat and grow and, and get bigger, and they got to the age where they, they were ready to form their little cocoon, and they went into the cocoon, and we said, well, now what do we do? And she said, you do the same thing. You wait, and you watch. And as we waited and we watched, we're wondering what's going to happen, and as you know, the caterpillar bursts out of the cocoon, and it's no longer a caterpillar. It was a butterfly. And all the first graders lost their mind. They couldn't understand how could this caterpillar go into a cocoon and come out a butterfly. This doesn't make any sense. Where did their legs go? Where, where did these colors come from? How can they fly now? They couldn't fly just a few days ago. They had completely changed. And in that transformation, we were in awe. See, there's something about transformation that, that makes us awestruck. 
Have you ever had that experience where, where you see something transform from one thing to another and you're just awe, in awe? You stand back and you just wonder, how did they do that? You know, if you watch uh, any of those TV shows where they, they change uh, homes or, or renovate different places, you know, you stand back and you're like, how did it go from this to that? It doesn't even look the same. There's something about transformation that leaves you awestruck. And I, I don't know about you, but that, that's a question you start to ask about your own life. It, how do they do that? How do people go from this kind of life to another kind of life? Right? And this is the time of year where you start to think about that. At the beginning of the year, a lot of people start reflecting on their life. You start looking back on the previous year and wondering about all the things that happened, looking forward to the, this coming year and wondering about what's going to happen and in this reflective mode, maybe you've been like me and you start looking at things that you have wanted to change. Maybe it's the things in your parenting or in your friendships or at your job or whatever it may be, your marriage. That you, you look at these things and you wonder, why is it taking so long for me to change these things? You start to wonder, how do the other people do that? How do they make transformation and change in their life when it looks like my life doesn't seem to be doing what their life is doing? See, what makes transformation particularly hard, I think, in our culture where we're so connected to other people's lives, at least on the internet, their, their internet version, is, is there's shame involved in transformation. One author uh, really helped me a lot as she defines shame like this. She says, shame is the fear of not belonging. It's the fear of not belonging. In other words, shame is very communal. It's this sense that, that I don't belong because I'm not smart enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not successful enough, I'm not uh, you know, a good enough parent, whatever it is, but I'm not something, and so I don't belong, I don't fit. And then when you see other people around you and you see their life changing and, and you see uh, you know, their Instagram feed that makes it seem like things just get better and better and better and better and better, you start to feel like, well, why doesn't that work in my life? Why isn't there transformation in my life? Well, the gospel speaks to this very issue of change and transformation, but it gives a different message than shame. It doesn't say you don't belong because you're not whatever. It says you do belong because you're not something. You belong because you're a failure and a sinner and a wreck and a mess just like all the rest of us. You belong and you can change. See, the lie of shame is that we will always be the same and we're not enough. Shame tells you you'll never change and you're never going to be enough. But the gospel has a very different message. It says you can change and you're enough in the gospel. So that's what I want to look at this morning. So today, like I said, it's Vision Sunday, and we're going to, we're going to take a few moments to just pause and, and think about what it looks like in 2024 for us as a church together to pursue God. And so every year uh, at the end of the year, we usually uh, have an elders retreat, which are the leaders in our church, and we start praying for about two days about what does the Lord have for us this coming year. And this year, as we went on a retreat and we started praying, uh, we, we felt like as we're, we're looking at our congregation and who are we and where has God taken us and where does he want to continue to take us, we felt led that this year we want to focus on spiritual formation. 
We want to focus on going deeper with our relationship with God. And what that means is, how can all of us, whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades or for a few days, or, or you're still trying to figure out if you want to follow Jesus, how can all of us take that next step? How can all of us go deeper in our relationship with him, deeper in our formation of what it means to be like Jesus and to live the life that he's called us to live? How can we go deeper in that? And so this year we're focusing in on, on the phrase that our uh, mission statement uses, which is healthy disciples. We want to see healthy, healthy disciples, right? And we're going to talk about that all year. What does that look like to actually be a healthy disciple? And so today I want to look at it from this angle of change, that all of us need true and lasting change, and we really can change. And so how can, we, how can we experience that, the true and lasting transformation? Let's first look at the motive. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point is this, the motive. The motive. Look at verse 1 here in Romans chapter 12. Paul the apostle says this. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, if you've never read Romans before, you may not know that this is a major transition in the book of Romans. So back up for a second with me. The book of Romans was written by Paul to the church in Rome, and the first 11 chapters of this letter, this first 11 chapters are in what we call the, uh, the indicative mood. So I'm going to give you a little grammar lesson today. The indicative mood, if you don't remember from high school uh, English, is this. It's the mood of facts. So it literally means, it, it's just, these are the facts. This is the state of being. And so it'd be things like, uh, you know, God is good. Jesus is alive. You are loved. That, that's the indicative mood. And so for 11 chapters, Paul has been writing primarily in the indicative mood, describing what God has done, not what we're doing. He's describing all the wonderful things in the gospel that God has done for us on our behalf. And there's very few commands. For 11 chapters, he only uses the, the command five times. Now listen to this. And then in chapter 12, it completely transitions. And when it transitions, he transitions hard, right? So five commands in the first 11 chapters, 82 commands in the last five chapters. I mean, Paul switches completely from this is what God has done to now this is what you are going to do in response. But... Before he gives us the what of our faith, he gives us the why. And you got you, you to hear this. This first verse is critical to the whole book and to your whole life in Christ. Here it is. The why changes everything. The why changes everything. And so what's his why? He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Do you hear that? In, in other words, he's saying, in view of all that I've written about for 11 chapters, all that God has done in his grace and mercy to save us in Jesus, now I'm appealing to you by that that you should go and do. Hear what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I appeal to you by the fear of God. I appeal to you that, hey, if you mess up real bad, it's going to be bad for you. I appeal to you by the shame of God. Hey, if you, if you don't do right, you're not going to belong in God's family. Or, I, I appeal to you by the guilt you should feel for all the wrong you've done and all the right you should have done. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. 
Why does he say that? He says, because all those other motives are insufficient. They won't last. The only motive that lasts is the mercy of God. Fear, listen, fear lives by merit. Faith lives by mercy. You have to know that before we start moving on to talking about change and transformation, that fear lives by merit. Faith lives by mercy. In 1870, there was a man by the name of Nathaniel Langford who uh, was sent to explore a volcano, an ancient volcano crater in Wyoming. And uh, while he was on this exploration to find out more about this crater, uh, on their second day of the exploration, he and his team see water shooting out of the ground, this tall beam of crystal clear water, and people start shouting, geysers, geysers. Now, if you don't know what a geyser is, it means it's hot, boiling water coming out of the earth's surface, shooting up about 100 feet into the air. And it was dangerous because, as you can imagine, if, if that amount of boiling water were shooting up out of the ground and you didn't know it was coming, it, it could kill you, it could harm you. And so people were panicking, and, and especially because geysers are notorious for being unpredictable. But this one was different. This one seemed to be on a, on a schedule. This one just kept going at the same pace, at the same rate. And so they ended up naming it Old Faithful. And you could, even till today, it's, it's on the same schedule. And in the National Park uh, Institute, they, they have kind of put it into a formula. And you can go on the website and you can see exactly when Old Faithful is going to erupt. It's like clockwork, just on the dot, boom, boom, boom. And here's, here's what's different. Day after day, month after month, you know when it's coming. You know what it's like. It's faithful. See, listen, God's mercy is just like that. God's mercy is faithful. He is the old faithful God. As the Bible says, uh, it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, right? God's mercies are like clockwork. New morning, new mercy. New morning, new mercy. New morning, new mercy. That, that's what he's saying. My, my mercy is something you can count on. My mercy is predictable. My mercy is faithful. It comes on schedule every time. And so what Paul is saying when he's saying, I'm appealing to you by the mercy of God, he's saying God has given us an unchanging motive because it's based on the unchanging God. This God who calls us to do things, and we'll get to that in a minute, he says, I'm calling you not based on your faithfulness, but I'm calling you based on my faithfulness. I'm calling you based on what I have already done for you. What I have already done in my mercy and grace, that is the motive that will change your life. See, fear and faithfulness are two radically different foundations for your relationship with God. See, fear will ruin your relationship. Faithfulness will anchor your relationship. And how do you know that your relationship with God is based on fear? How do you know it's based on fear? It's when your your life is erratic because you think God is erratic. What I mean by that is you're running around wondering, am I enough for God? Have I done enough for God? Am I good enough for God? Have I shared my faith enough? Have I read the Bible enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I gone to church enough? Have I parented well enough? Have I been successful enough? Have I done this enough? Have I done that enough? And so your whole life is a chaotic wondering of, am I good enough for God? And when I feel good, 
things are great. And when I feel bad, things are terrible because God must be ready to erupt on me like some unpredictable geyser. But God has said, I've given you a different foundation. The foundation of our relationship is not your faithfulness. It's my faithfulness. It's my faithfulness. Here's the irony of a fear-based relationship. You'll never know. You'll never know because you and I, we are uh, finite people who cannot know all things at all times. I don't know all the bad things I've done. I don't know all the good things I've done. I can't know everything I'm doing at all times, in all places, in all of my life, and what I'm going to do in the future. I, I can't know it. And so if you're trying to know if you're good enough for God, your best thing is to just guess. And you're going to base your whole relationship on a guess? You're going to base your whole relationship with God on, I wonder if I've done enough. I think I have. I wonder if I've messed up enough. I don't think I have. God is saying, you you don't have to live in that kind of fear-based, unpredictable relationship. I'm appealing to you by my mercies, by my mercies. And so what happens when, when mercy isn't our motive, when God's faithfulness isn't what moves us? This is the second thing. We get put into a cultural mold, and this is This is what I want to look at next, the mold. Look at verse 2. Paul goes on to say this. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, from here on, Paul contrasts two ways forward. He says you can either be conformed or you can be transformed. You catch that? He's saying there's really two ways forward. And, and, and on the conformed side, let's, let's pause there for a moment. The word there literally means to be put into a mold. So uh, the, the old J.B. Phillips, which is kind of like the message of the previous generation, it, it's a paraphrased translation. He, he does a great job here. He says this, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That really captures the heart of what Paul's saying, because Paul is concerned that the world, the culture, those around us are going to try to squeeze you into its mold, and the most powerful way that the world and the culture does that is through the cultural tool of story. I mean, nothing forms us like stories form us, and so the question is, what what stories are are forming you, right? Because our culture is going to give you stories that will form you. They're going to form your, your, uh, your definition of success. They're going to form your definition of of marriage. They're going to form your definition of what you should do with your finances. They're going to form your definition of your spiritual life. They're going to form your definition of what you should be uh, doing with your kids and and, uh, your friendships and relationships, right? The, The stories that are told in our culture are going to shape you into the mold of the culture. It's It's designed that way. And so he's saying, don't be conformed, don't be put into that mold but instead have the renewal of your mind. This is what he's talking about. See, for many of us, the stories that, that draw us in are the stories on our, on our phones, but whether it's Instagram. I mean, Instagram even literally calls them stories. These are the things that are, are meant to form your identity. They're, they're meant to form how you see the world. It's really answering the two most important questions you can ask. Who am I and who, I'm, who am I becoming? Who am I and who am I becoming? Those identity questions are going to be answered somewhere. 
Are they going to be answered by the stories of the culture, or are they going to be answered by the stories of the gospel? That's the question. Paul's saying the way that your, your mind and the way that your life is, is not conformed into the mold of the culture is, is to be renewed. And the way that happens, Paul says, is through the renewal of God's truth, right? It's scripture. It's scripture that shapes us in God's story for us. Uh, there's a place in Chattanooga, Tennessee called Ruby Falls that uh, me and some friends visited years ago on a road trip. It was an incredible road trip, and uh, Ruby Falls was, was a wonderful stop on the way. And, and I remember being just overwhelmed by seeing the beauty of Ruby Falls, because if you never heard of Ruby Falls, it's actually the, the uh, I think it's the tallest, let me get it right, it's the tallest and the deepest underground waterfall tallest and deepest underground waterfall. So you have to go down into this cave to then see this incredibly beautiful waterfall. And, and you'll be overwhelmed with awe and wonder, but then what also fascinated me were these things in the cave called stalactites. And stalactites, if you, you've probably seen them in pictures if you haven't seen them in person, but they're these long pointy things that are hanging from the ceiling in caves, right? And, and stalactites are not formed by the waterfall. They're not formed by this rushing waterfall of, of beauty and, and power. The way those are formed is through the small, slow drip of water. Slow, almost imperceivable dripping of mineral-rich water. In fact, the stalactites in Ruby Falls, they grow, get this, at the average rate of 0.1 millimeters per year. 0.1 millimeters per year. The, the quickest one, the quickest one that's winning the race is three millimeters per year. Could you imagine? You, you can't even see it growing. If it's growing at 0.1 millimeters a year, how do you even know it's happening? How do you even know what's going on? And it's not this rushing water. It's this slow drip that it, over time, over days and weeks and months and years, now all of a sudden there's this incredibly beautiful creation. Well, this slow drip is how Scripture shapes us. Let's be honest. That isn't how most of us think Scripture shapes us. And let's also be honest. That's not how most of us prefer Scripture to shape us. We would much rather it be the waterfall effect. Like, we just stand under the waterfall and let Scripture uh, you know, conform me into the image of Christ and I'm just going to be washed over and it's going to change my life and everything's going to be great. And, you know, it took about 30 minutes. And 30 minutes later, all my sins are, are dealt with, all my problems, all my bad thoughts and habits, they're all done with. No, that's not how it happens. The renewal of our mind is much more like a slow drip that over time where you can barely even see it happening, it might be 0.1 millimeters a year. We are moving in the direction towards Jesus' likeness. But it's happening. There's change. Now think about it this way. If, if for your whole life, whether your life has been, you know, seven or eight years or 70 or 80 years, for your whole life the culture has been trying to squeeze you into a mold slowly and surely, what if it took that long for you to now be conformed to the image of Christ? What if the slow drip of Scripture isn't uh, what you think it is, but it is more powerful than what the culture is going to do in your life? That's how it works. It's this slow, contextual, consistent change. 
Now, I want to invite all of us, and Steve already said this earlier, I want to invite all of us into this next 90 days where we are having uh, just an opportunity for all of us to read the scriptures together uh, through the New Testament in 90 days. And what, what this is, is really an opportunity for us to see the slow drip of scripture. Like he said already, it'll take you about 15 minutes a day, and the goal is not to read it as fast as you can or to read as much as you can, but it's literally to let the slow drip of Scripture for just a few minutes of day wash over your life and transform your mind, to, to, to get you out of the mold of the culture and, and fill your heart and your mind with the stories of the gospel and the stories of the good news of Jesus that change your thought life, change your prayer life, change your relationships, that you allow the Holy Spirit to work in you where you may not even know you need to work. And listen, it's 90 days, but if you miss a day, who cares? Just pick back up and go for it again. There should be a little bookmark on your chair. You could take that home with you. You can check off the little boxes for all the people who like to check boxes. You can just throw it in the trash if you don't like to check boxes. That's fine too. There's a website uh, on our, or a webpage on our website that has all the readings, and it'll read it to you if you want to listen while you're driving, listen while you're walking. I don't know. Uh, but just engage with the scriptures for 15 minutes a day. Let the slow drip of scripture take you away from the conformity to the world and say, God, I, I need you to renew my mind. God, I need you to change me. God, I need you to do what I can't do. And let me also encourage you to, to not do it alone. If you ever tried to have a Bible reading plan all by yourself, it, it's really hard because you're all by yourself and by like the second month you've given up already because no one knows you've given up and it doesn't matter and, and no one's encouraging you, no one's praying for you. So let this be different. Let this be an opportunity where you're going to pray for a few people. You're going to check in with a few people. You're going to text the people in your connect group or on your serve team or whatever it is, but let them engage with you. Ask them, what's God speaking to you this week? How is his word shaping your heart, your mind, your thoughts? And engage with one another as, as friends and as family. But I would encourage all of us to be a part of it as we seek to see our identity, our, our, our way of seeing ourself and God shaped not by the culture, but by his word, by the stories of the gospel. But this kind of growth and grace, it, it isn't going to be like the cultural mold. It actually requires a miracle. It requires a miracle. And this is what I want to look at lastly. The third point is the miracle. Look at the beginning of verse 2 again. It's right here. Paul says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but here it is, be transformed. Right? Remember I said these are two ways forward. You can either be conformed or you can be transformed. But they're very different ways forward. The word he uses for transformation is metamorpho. It's this idea that you're being transformed into something else completely different. In other words, it's no longer the thing that it once was. It's a completely different transformation. It's like the caterpillar going into the butterfly. There's a completely different nature to what is now happened. And so it's not like the cultural mold that's trying to squeeze you into something. This is trying to shatter the mold. It's saying that this is going to be something radically new, something radically different. In fact, this word is only used two other times in the New Testament. 
The, the uh, first one is with Jesus, where his transfiguration happens, and Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed into something else, right? And then later on in the New Testament, Paul uses it in first, uh, or 2 Corinthians 3. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul's saying, this is the kind of radical transformation God wants for you. He wants you to be transformed from something that you once were to now something completely new. But how does that happen? What's fascinating here is Paul says, be transformed. Be transformed. It's actually really strange. Remember the, the grammar lesson we had? You have the indicative and the imperative. Well, the imperative is the command, the, the command that, that you're given to do something. Well, what Paul does here is he takes the imperative and he makes it passive. In other words, he's saying, I want you to do this, but you can't do it. I want you to be transformed, but it's not going to be you that actively is being transformed. You, you are going to receive it. This is going to be passive. In other words, he's saying it doesn't happen by you. It happens to you. It's received. In other words, it would be better to translate it, be being transformed. Like, I, I want you to, to do something that you have the inability to do, but God can do it. That's what he's saying. I, I want you to do something that you can't do, but God can and he must do it. This is the gospel miracle. That transformation doesn't come by us. True transformation comes by trusting in God to transform us. In John chapter 3, we see this same theme. Uh, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a religious leader, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And Nicodemus, we know, was, was one of these religious leaders who had power and authority. And, and he also, he knew all the religious things. He knew how to read the Bible. He knew how to pray. He knew how to go to worship and at the temple and all those things. And so he thought, hey, I have a pretty good relationship with God. I mean, this is my profession. I'm a professional religious person until he met Jesus. And Jesus, when Jesus is talking about uh, the Father and he's talking about his prayer life and he's talking about his relationship with the Father, there's something different about Jesus. And so Nicodemus realizes, hey, this guy has something that I don't have. My relationship with God is all about rules and regulations and my obedience and my faithfulness. And Jesus seems to be full of freedom. Jesus seems to be full of, of life and joy, and, and there seems to be something different. I need to find out what that is. And so Nicodemus goes in the middle of the night, and he tries to, to hide in the darkness of night, but he also tries to hide behind his comments. He tries to hide and say to Jesus, hey, th this is what I want to talk about. I, I want to let you know that I believe that you're from God, because you couldn't do all the things you're doing unless you were from God. But Jesus, as if he's just ignoring what Nicodemus says, doesn't even respond to his comment because he knows the real reason that Nicodemus is there. He knows the real reason is because Nicodemus is spiritually hungry. Nicodemus wants to know what it means to really know God the way Jesus does. Nicodemus really wants to have a life that is different and, and, and full of, of, of joy and, and freedom. And so Jesus instead responds this way. He says, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you can never see the kingdom of God. What? 
What does that have to do with what I just told you? What I'm asking you about? What are you talking about, Jesus? And then so Nicodemus is so confused. He says to Jesus, he says, how can someone be born a second time? How can you go back into your mother's womb? This doesn't make sense, Jesus. What are you talking about? This is what Jesus was talking about. He was telling Nicodemus, this proud, religious, obedient, disciplined man, he says, you have based your whole relationship with God on what you do in your faithfulness. But listen, that's not what it's about. I mean, he, he uses this metaphor of a second birth to, to show Nicodemus this has nothing to do with your faithfulness. I mean, what could be more passive than being born? What, what could be more passive than, than literally being born out of no effort of your own, but you were born? And Jesus is saying this. He's saying to Nicodemus, he's saying, if you didn't earn your first birth, you're not going to earn your second birth. Your second birth, your, your relationship with God that's going to come alive and, and the deadness and dullness you feel in your heart that's going to come alive, it's not going to be because of you. It's going to be because of God's miraculous transforming power in you. See, the gospel is good news of a transformation. The gospel is, is Jesus saying to Nicodemus, be transformed but it's not going to be you that does the transformation. It's going to be God. See, the gospel doesn't make nice people. It makes new people. It's based on the resurrection. Jesus has to be transformed for us from death to life, from grave to glory. He not only died for us, he was raised for us. He was raised in newness of life. He was raised with all power in his hands. He was raised with transformation on the horizon. And so he's saying we must trust the Savior who was transformed for us. God is able to do what we can't do. You can't be changed in your own strength. You can't be changed in your fears and worries. You can't be changed by your hopes and dreams or your guilt or shame. The only way you can change is if God does the miraculous work in you. That's how we change. And so we have to trust him to change us deeply, to change us truly down to the root. And so will you trust God for your transformation today? This is our prayer as we embark on this journey together to see God deeply form us in the gospel. We, we want to be transformed people. We want to be people that, that God hears us cry out to him and say, I, I can't change myself. I can't change the things that I've been trying to change. I can't change my attitude, my anger, my fears, my anxieties. I can't change my instability. I can't change my depression, my discouragement. I need you, God, to change me. And you lay yourself before him. The Bible calls it repentance and faith. Repentance is literally just turning the other direction. You're, you're turning away from trying to change yourself. And faith is, God, I need you to change me. Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you to change me because I can't do it. Would you come to him with that? What do you need to bring to him? What, what do you need to say to God this year? I need you to change this because I can't do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our hearts need to be changed. Our hearts need to be transformed by your power, by the resurrection power that brought you from death to life. God, may you bring life in us. May you bring hope in us. May you bring joy in us. Bear much fruit in your people. Oh Lord, we ask that you would use your word as we 
start to read the New Testament over the next 90 days together. May you bring uh, transforming power through the scriptures where our minds need to be renewed. May you give us the mind of Christ where our hearts need to be made alive. May your Holy Spirit enliven us. God, even for those who may be far from you right now, and like Nicodemus, are curious, are seeking, are wondering, oh, may your Holy Spirit bring that new birth. May you bring new life, the transforming power of your life, death, and resurrection for us. We pray in Christ's name. 